Welcome to The Threat Show, powered by Fletch. I tell people all the time, the hackers have your password. Just assume they have your password. So if you're logging into something and you're assuming that password is just already compromised, you have to have the mentality of, okay, that's not going to work anymore. Using a password to me is dead. It died eight years ago. So you have to have MFA, otherwise all your passwords are compromised. Hi, welcome back to The Threat Show. I'm Darren Kinlan, VP of Technology at Fletch. And joining me as always each week, every week, Chris Wilder, Research Director and Senior Analyst at Tag Cyber. Welcome back for another week, Chris. All right. I think we're up to, what, 31 now? I know. It, it doesn't feel like half the year is over already, almost, right? No, it does not. <laughs> We've got a cool guest today. I've been looking forward to this one. Absolutely. We're joined this week by special guest Corey White. Corey is a 28-year cybersecurity veteran, starting out as a director of professional services at McAfee Foundstone, to serving as senior vice president of Worldwide Consulting and chief experience officer at Silence. Corey has a ton of deep technical experience, having managed security practices, consulting teams, and delivered strategic projects, as well as tactical assessments, pen tests, and instant response engagements across a ton of different industry verticals. But more recently, Corey is the founder, CEO, and chief experience officer at Savitar.ai, where they aim to innovate and challenge cybersecurity by offering smart, measurable subscription services that help firms quickly achieve compliance and build security remediation programs that are quantifiable, reliable, and repeatable. Welcome to the show, Corey. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. I can't wait to dive in. This is going to be fun this morning. Yeah, yeah. So we'll be talking with Corey a bit further about the importance of continuous remediation, as well as his advice for small, medium-sized businesses looking to level up their security. But first, let's run through the numbers and check out this week's headlines. And wow, there has been a ton of activity. Yeah. I, I'm not sure... I'm I'm not sure what to make of it, honestly. I think looking at the numbers, we've had now a new high for this past week, 271 major threats over the past 30 days, net new 18 now emerging. Wow. I was expecting kind of a little bit of a lull, but totally different. I kind of went back through and looked at these numbers because I thought I thought you had a typo in there earlier and really it, there's very specific groups that are being incredibly active right now. I think Lazarus themselves have 27 active campaigns going and they're all different. So there's just a, there's just a lot of activity. And I think ransomware has become it's hacker for hire. And that's yeah, we're gonna see this keep going and going and going. But like I said, I thought it was a typo. Right. Yeah, I thought so too. But you know, looking back from previous years, we're now what, T minus two days away from a major US holiday, right? Yeah. Memorial Day. So that's usually a great time for a lot of attackers to try to fly under the radar, so to speak, because a lot of security teams generally tend to be understaffed or less staffed. So yeah, I mean, this kind of tracks from a historical cyclical perspective. And you know, people are getting ready to go on vacation. So that's hotel websites, airlines, anything that has to do with travel, that's all, they're all juicy targets. And one of the CDEs that we're going to be talking about today is very specific to that. So, yeah, I mean, looking at the, the numbers further, we had a total of 48 new emerging threats. Wow, it was crazy. But of the historical threats that we tracked, 22 got retired because we haven't seen anything new over the past month. So it's been a very active week just in terms of new threats being discovered and reported on in the news. We've got 
a number of actual vulnerabilities that we're covering in today's episode, as well as evolutionary techniques across a number of different ransomware groups that we've seen new activity for, including new activity tied to nation states that we'll talk more about towards the end of the show. But first on our list was a new type of vulnerability discovered by Salt Labs focused on OAuth, our favorite modern way to authenticate to any web service nowadays, yes. right? And specifically, if you've used any website that has a button like, hey, you know, log in with Facebook, log in with Google, log in with Microsoft, right? You're, you're using OAuth, whether or not you realize it, to be able to access that website. Turns out that a very popular OAuth framework called Expo.io was found to have a vulnerability in it. And that's really what was discovered by, by Salt Labs. In fact, this particular vulnerability allowed an attacker to basically send a malicious link to a unsuspecting victim. They clicked on the link and that would cause the victim to send valid credentials to the attacker themselves. Now, thankfully, this particular attack's already been patched and remediated by Expo, but it kind of sends a worrisome message to businesses that are relying on these authentication frameworks. Does it make sense to potentially scrap it and build your own? And I think the general answer, the general consensus is probably not, right? No. I mean, you know, you want a lot of people leveraging a popular framework because that way these particular vulnerabilities get discovered faster you don't necessarily want to try to roll your own, just as you wouldn't want to roll your own cryptography, you would not want to roll your own authentication. Is that fair to say, Chris? Yeah, and this Expo framework is right for compromise, not just because of who uses it, but it's so big and so yeah. expansive. It's hard, hard to navigate, and I'm surprised they actually found it this fast, but it's like open source software. It's everybody's responsibility if there's bad code out there, dirty code, and you know, same with this framework. It's a, everybody's got to fix it, and I think it's, it's glad that people are being more vigilant on it, but I'd say just don't make the frameworks as big, and then you can <laughs> control and make it a little bit more concise. That's fair. A lot of maybe not small businesses, but medium-sized businesses yeah. that are looking at a vulnerability like this might be wondering, is this just an acceptable risk or is there anything else we can do to mitigate this sort of issue? And unfortunately, you know, when you're using a third-party library like this, it's really part of your supply chain, right? You're yeah. kind of trusting that the vendor for this particular component is going to run through proper vulnerability scans, patch up any vulnerabilities quickly. And that is a implicit risk. But the only other way that you can mitigate something like this might be to swap in a different auth provider, but that's not easy, especially if you're on upstart, right? Plus Expo's free to use, so. Exactly. How can you compete <laughs> with free, right? Yeah. So moving on our list, next was a new activity attributed to Fin7, a very popular cyber criminal group. They're now leveraging a new type of variant of a pretty old ransomware malware family called CLOP. And in this particular case, Microsoft reported this new activity change as of last month, but there's no new vulnerability specifically attributed to this. So it's likely CLOP might be paired with the old Fortra vulnerabilities or even the new paper cuts print server vulnerabilities that we've covered in past shows. Mm -hmm. You know, it muddies the waters as to who is actually going after groups. And it stresses the point of keeping up to date with your EDR products that are designed to catch this sort of activity, even when 
a very popular cyber criminal group uses the same tried and true malware that's been known about for many years now. It's a numbers game. They don't, they don't want to change it up too much because it is tried and true. This is how they act. But you're absolutely right on the EDR side. As long as your endpoint devices are, are up to date, should be okay coming out of this one. But it's a war of attrition right now. There's so many devices being attached every single day. And a lot of times people just, they think, oh, I've got Sentinel-1 or I've got this, you know, I'm good to go. That's certainly not the case. And they 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 count on, you know, being able to find those one in every 10,000 devices. And that's all they need. Exactly. Know? So higher up on our spectrum of sophistication, we've seen new activity reported by Black Cat, also known as ALF-V. Yeah. Uh, Trend Micro basically reported that now Black Cat has got access to signed certificates to be able to roll their own signed malware. And this leads into a whole discussion about what is signed malware and why is it important? And the reality is it allows the operating system to kind of trust the code implicitly, yeah. less controls in place, and allows the malware to move freely to be able to compromise the system in a much easier way. And there's an entire ecosystem around obtaining code signing certificates to be able to do this, which they kind of outlined by Trend Micro. And a lot of operators think, well, if I just only allow signed code to run, I'm safe. And that's the silver bullet. And unfortunately, in this particular case, that's not a valid assumption anymore. We'll see more of these types of attacks, especially as we're seeing the number of attacks and malware that just go completely undetected. They, they, they rummage their way through your enterprise. And, you know, once they change the keys on this stuff, they'll just come back with more. So. Right. I mean, one of the strategic things, if you're, let's say, a medium-sized business, is to consider potentially not just implicitly trusting all signed code. This is traditional public key infrastructure, right, where the operating system has a list of trusted root certificate authorities that your operating system trusts it might be worthwhile to kind of prune that list and not necessarily trust software assigned by Bopsoft or Yeezing or some other sketchy vendor that you would never legitimately have code running on your computer. That's another way to kind of manage this, but it's, it's not easy, right? And it doesn't necessarily solve this problem completely either. No, and the, the guys who are deploying these apps and software, typically DevOps folks and IT people that are not cybersecurity people. This is where having a good process, having good communication, having security involved. This is stuff that we would say, yeah, it makes sense. This is, I would do the same thing if I were a bad guy. But the guys that are actually implementing and deploying don't really have that mindset. So, Yeah. So even if you go through the process of trying to only have signed code, trusted signed code running, yeah. <laughs> there's still another type of vulnerability related to this, which kind of leads us into our next threat focused on a threat group that Fortinet discovered linked possibly to an Iranian threat group yeah. using a type of malware called WinTapix. And the interesting thing about this is that the threat group doesn't actually try to sign their malware with a valid signature. Instead, what they do is they bring a vulnerable driver into the operating system that has been signed and then they exploit it. <laughs> so it's like, again, not a silver bullet, right? Sign code is not a silver bullet to protecting against vulnerabilities that might already exist within signed code, right? This one's not so much different. The more that you know, I started looking in the, into this one, and, and I, I'm not too surprised by this. This is, you know, kind of makes a lot of sense from a 
hacker point of view, but just the amount, the number of large nation state activity coming out of Iran is just staggering right now. Mm-hmm. And they have really kind of taken the mantle of ransomware as a service. They start off as activists and now they're actually realize, oh gosh, we can make a ton of money. I, it's just, I think Iran has kind of, has become the the up and coming fighter in the hacker world. It's certainly interesting to see how this progression of skills evolves over the next yeah. you know, six to nine to 12 months, right? Oh my gosh, I'd love to see North Korea and Iran duke it out like that. (laughs) (laughs) can grab your your popcorn there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So next on our list is actually a new type of ransomware called Malala's Locker. Now, this particular group is relatively new. They're targeting Zimbra servers, which again, there's been many different vulnerabilities related to this open source version of what, Microsoft Exchange Mm -hmm. um, as a service, right? But what's interesting about them is that when they launch their malware and compromise a Zimbra server and supposedly encrypt and lock that, when they issue a demand, they're not actually being demanding to be paid. Instead, they're demanding that the victim donate to a nonprofit charity that they quote unquote approve of. And this is kind of unusual. I think, you know, Chris, from your perspective, does this change the calculus of whether or not a victim would actually pay the ransom or not? I, no, no, because <laughs> they're still still pain in the neck. You have to deal with it somehow. You know, yeah. they realize that a lot of companies just quite straight up aren't paying anymore or they're paying and they don't want anybody to know about it. And that's why we're getting a lot of these double extortion attacks but it's not going to change behavior. This just feels like somebody's playing a prank on somebody else. It's well, it it's weird. Yeah, doesn't make any sense. It, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think there's two possible variations. Either the nonprofit charities that they quote unquote approve of are actually just fronts for yeah. another portion of their business, in which case it's just glorified money laundering. Or theoretically, the nonprofit charities are not attributed to the threat group at all, in which case. It's not really cyber crim- traditional cyber criminal activity. It would be more classified as hacktivism, right? Yeah. And looking at the list of potential organizations, theoretically, this feels more like hacktivist activity than traditional cyber criminal elements. And I think one of the realizations are that, okay, now if hacktivists are getting into this game, does this change the game plan of how victim organizations respond to these things? Do they need to now come up with a playbook to deal specifically with hacktivists as opposed to just traditional cyber criminals? I don't know. The money is getting too good for these guys to to stay on the hacktivism side of the world. I should do this with my with my kids sometime where I just put this on there and make them pay their rent or pay their own bills on time. <laughs> so. You want your you want your files back? Got to pay your rent. I don't know. It's kind of an interesting one. Generally speaking, though, if you're running Zembra, definitely keep it up to date and patched. Well, yeah, and it would avoid this sort of issue. That's right. Thanks for reminding me on that one. I mean, Zembra is we are always on this show and in it tag. You know, our advice is number one: don't host your own exchange servers or your own email servers. And number two, the big trend right now is Office 365. So much easier to deploy. Zimbra can be stubborn. I think it's kind of more religious war between servers. But our advice is just go to 365. It's so much easier. You don't have to deal with this. Fair um, enough. But give to your Fair favorite enough. charity nonetheless. They, they need the right. money. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And last but not least on our list, coming on the heels of 
Super Typhoon Mawar, which was a Category 5 hurricane that devastated the U.S. territory of Guam, it looks like Microsoft Threat Intelligence is reporting that there's activity attributed from China that's also devastated critical infrastructure, not just within Guam, but elsewhere in the United States. Volt Typhoon was the campaign that they called this thing. And it's now gone after, gosh, every possible industry vertical at this point since, what, two and a half years ago. The techniques that are involved are pretty much standard MOs for most China-based threat groups. What was interesting about this particular latest kill chain is that the initial access that the threat group was going after was through basically compromised small home office routers. Again, edge networking devices. In this case, it was a Fortinet FortiGuard device that has some unknown vulnerability that they leveraged to gain access. But ultimately, any sort of nation state based in China probably has access to a number of different vulnerabilities across a number of different edge networking devices. And what it really comes down to is a lot of this gear is unfortunately exposed directly to the internet where the management devices, the management ports are all enabled by default, which is a whopping barn door to be able to get in for a lot of these different groups. So it's funny because in past weeks, we talked about how like edge networking devices typically are so obviously overlooked by so many different small, medium-sized businesses. This is just another example of that. I've had several conversations this week with some of our large globally distributed enterprise clients and their biggest fear are are these branch offices because they're small two, three, four people in the office that they'll just go off and get an off-the-shelf router. And it used to be they're they're getting a little bit better, but um, if you did a Wireshark on on a Netgear router, for example, a small home router, it's just DDoS, 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 just attack, attack, attack it over and over and over again. And you know, sure, you wonder why your internet's so slow. It's because you're you're getting DDoSed all day long. So no, it's they're massive targets, and there's a lot of them, and it goes back to edge devices. There's so many of them; it's just a numbers game, and they'll get in. Right. And it's it's a matter of not just patching these devices once, but it's no, it's a it's the process. Right. You have to keep up with every single patch. And if you have edge networking devices that are scattered across many different vendors, then it becomes monumentally hard for any sort of small, medium sized business to keep up with this. And the sad part is most people still have admin and password as the login. (laughs) So that something's just never changed because they just they get intimidated by the router they don't even know how to log into the console but that's another reason why i think that these are such juicy targets right this i think leads into a great conversation around just the need for proper continuous remediation and response yeah. not just related to this particular issue but Corey, I'm curious from your perspective, is this an example of the type of continuous remediation that small, medium-sized businesses should consider and think about as part of their larger strategy? Absolutely. I mean, here's the deal, though. Small and medium-sized businesses, I talk to them all day, every day. A lot of them don't think they can be attacked. Wow. Yes. I'm blown away by it, but I did a call just last week with one, and they handle tax returns. And they're like, hey, we're not a target, are we? And I was like, I think you (laughs) misspoke in your email. Yes, you absolutely are a target. But the mindset is that they're not a target. And so 
We still have a lot of education to do around SMBs and, and startups because there's so much confusion around what the real threat landscape actually looks like. It's, it's really, really scary. And I'll pause there, but I'll take a minute. I want to talk about CVEs and the count of CVEs that are out there so far. Sure. This year. Yeah. So, so I was just checking while you were talking. The number of CVEs, take a guess. What do you think it was on average every quarter last year in 2022? What do you guys think it was? 5,000, 2,000, 1,000? Hmm. I'm, I'm going to say higher. I, I'm going to say yeah. like maybe, I don't know, ballpark 20,000 perhaps, somewhere around there. Well, Chris, you want to go? What do you think? I'll do 13, 13,000. All right. The total CVEs for 2022 were 25,000, a little over 25,000. Wow. Okay. Wow. And it yeah. averages about 6,000 or so per quarter. Makes sense, yeah. And guess how many we had in Q1 of 2023? Mm. Wow, that is a great question. Maybe 8,000, somewhere around there? It went up to 7,000. Seven? Wow. Wow. So, yeah, back in the day, when yeah. I started doing this, you might have a couple hundred in, in the late 90s. Then it went up to max 5,000, 7,000. Yeah. The number of vulnerabilities are increasing every single year. And we still have the education problem of SMBs. They're not patching. They're not fixing the problem. That's not scanning. They're not doing the basics. So no. we're in the middle of a crisis, in my opinion. Yeah, it's bizarre. You know, you see so many different organizations get breached in the news and I guess it's like, I don't know, survivorship bias or, or some other, you know, just <laughs> their eyes glaze over. They don't quite connect the dots of this is how this particular victim got attacked. Yeah, I mean, after my feedback, after being in this industry for 28 years and most of my experiences, enterprise and mid-market, and you look at the threat actor groups you just talked about, and I've done literally hundreds and hundreds of incidents over the years. Mm -hmm. I can tell you the number of incidents that were sophisticated threat actors. I've written, you know, white papers on them and all kind of operational war, uh, um, you know, the OPM hack that I did that mm -hmm. one. Well, now all these are big and public and very, very sophisticated, but right. the vast majority of them really simple. And so if you don't patch and you know, we were just looking at earlier, some of the top five vulnerabilities we see across our customer base that we are continually fixing, but mm -hmm. simple thing like an Adobe vulnerability that allows mm -hmm. for code execution. I mean, that's all scripted out. I mean, you can literally press a button and get a command prompt instantly. So wow. and it's automatically now, you know, happening automatically now. So the internet's scanning continuously and they're looking for these vulnerabilities, exploiting them. Same thing with external routers that are misconfigured at home networks. I mean, those are easy and those are automated now. Used to be someone manually doing something. No, it's automated. The next thing yeah. you know, and they just have it already accessed. So the reason why this is happening, though, is there's just not enough education in the SMB space. But we're also connecting everything, too. You're right on the sophistication side of these attacks, but we went from the average family having 10 connected devices to a thousand connected devices in their homes and our refrigerators and our thermostats. And one of the one of the challenges, you know, we've we've come across a bunch of different vulnerabilities that affect small, medium-sized businesses. And the reason why they were affected was not because the hardware that they had in there or they didn't have the username admin and password as their password, is just because that they weren't segmenting their their networks. 
And so they're coming in through these connected devices and getting the keys to the kingdom. And I think the Aloha system, the NCR's Aloha system that manages right. bars, they just set a massive vulnerability in there. And what was happening is the attackers were coming in through another, like the TV or the printer, and they're coming in and they were then that was all connected in the POS systems. And just most companies, when, when you look at them, say, well, do you do VLANs or do you ne network segmentation? Is everything on one router? That blank stare that I get every once in a while. <laughs> when my dog does is turning his head, trying to figure out what I'm saying. We've had people that do that too. And it's mostly the SMEs that just really, they just don't understand. You're absolutely 100% correct, Corey. This is education and more education and more education. And this is why I like what you guys are doing. Both you guys, both companies. Yeah, just to touch on that, it's interesting. I agree with you. I mean, I've been configuring VLANs, network segmentation. Yeah. Years and years and years. I think that's too much to ask. When I come into a typical SMB as a customer and ask what we have in place, the answer is usually nothing. So if they don't have any endpoint protection, then if you walk through it, let's say most don't have any, they do have something, then they have, you know, I've wanted some, some to have Sentinel-1. It's not configured, but they have it because no. their MSP said, oh yeah, we can resell Sentinel-1, we'll install them configured. That's just like getting the best door lock you can for your house and not ever locking your door. Like, <laughs> my ring camera will tell me when somebody comes in into the house, right? You know, it's fine. Yeah. We just kick them out. But it's ridiculous what, what's happening out there. And so I don't think education is the only key. Education, no. let them know that there is a problem that you need to have security. That's the extent of it. And I'll give an example. Take, take Tesla, you know, the cars, for example. When right. you have the key in your pocket and you walk away from your car, it will automatically close and lock the door. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you think about cybersecurity for your home, you want it to automatically close and lock the doors. Now that'd be the equivalent of making sure that multi-factors in place, you're scanning and patching every single day, endpoints blocking malware. You want that to happen automatically. But we, as an industry, we haven't evolved to that point yet. We haven't matured to that point yet. So I think that is what the biggest challenge is. It's a maturity challenge, but also at the same time, we got to keep it really, really simple because we're never going to be able to educate the masses to know all the stuff that we know. So that's an excellent point. And I wish more companies kind of had that that approach because it's a combination of everything. You're absolutely right. If you don't have to think about it, you'll forget about it. But then the first time you get locked out of your house, though, you have to re reset the authentication on your house, your two-factor. That's going to get people pissed off too. That's they're not going to they're not going to appreciate that because you're adding complexity to something that they've sacrificed their privacy and security for convenience. You know, this is a common challenge of just reminding them, hey, this is why this control exists. This is why yeah. we're doing it, right? It's like there's a reason why now on a major plane, on a major commercial aircraft, the pilot door is reinforced with like two layers of steel because of a massive attack that happened. Mm -hmm. Same type of thing. It's like constantly reminding users, hey, this is why we have MFA because of all these other things that have failed. And it's very easy to kind of get lost in that rationale, right? Where people don't understand what the controls were designed to do and prevent. So as part of education, you have to kind of remind them, well, this is the badness that happened before we introduced this control. This is why it exists. And that's the challenging conversation for sure. 
Well, I think that that conversation has to happen in the right context. You got to be able to say this bad thing happened. Here's the case study. This solution prevents it from happening. The example I'll give, and you know, I was born in the '70s, and I, it blows my mind when I think about it because I have you know twin daughters now. My mom brought me home from the hospital with no seatbelt on. It wasn't a law yeah. in the '70s. Okay, I was yeah. not in the car seat. Okay, the car didn't have airbags, didn't have anti-locking brakes, no third brake light. So none of these preventative controls were in place. Now we think, oh my God, you would never think of doing that. And so you think about the maturity of the auto industry and how that's matured over the years. Well, cybersecurity has to catch up to your point, Darren, to be able to say, hey, you got to have MFA, otherwise all your passwords are compromised. So that's the level of mindset that we have to educate people on. It's just going to take some time. 70s, son, boy, I I don't even know what you're talking about, Corey. We we have all that stuff. No, that's you're absolutely you're absolutely right. And I think in a lot of times, you know, we we do have seatbelts in cars now because of accidents. We have child seats because we realize that they, you know, it's not good to just put your kid in the back of the car. I don't know if you remember laying in the a lot of the cars had the big scoop back, you'd lay it back in the back seat in the windows there. Oh, that was so much fun. But uh station wagon. Now my brother playing. So no, and I think we just realized like, well, this is kind of stupid. We need to protect ourselves more. And so you're right, this revolution of innovation started coming and realizing, yeah, we're saving lives. And this is what we've got to do in, in business as well. You're right. And people need to stop taking convenience over security. Yeah, you may have to set up two-factor authentication on your Tesla someday, but that's okay. Well, let me ask you guys what you think, because I, I love the format of your, your show here. I tell people all the time, the hackers have your password. Just assume they have your password. Mm-hmm. Because I've done global incidents and watch my password walk out the door. I'm like, all right, do it for oh, yeah. like, So the, the assumption has to be your password is useless today. If you just use a name and password, obviously your username is easy. They, anybody can figure it out. Right. But they also have your password. So that's the assumption. So if you're logging into something and you're assuming that password is just already compromised, you have to have the mentality of, okay, that's not going to work anymore. Using a password to me is dead. It died eight years ago. So you have to have MFA. Otherwise, all your passwords are compromised. I, I think to your point, it's challenging some very old assumptions about what people think as relates to security in general. And that's one example. I, I think vendors need to start baking in the default path. <laughs> the easy path is also the secure path, right? So instead of allowing someone to create an account with just a password, require them to say, okay, look, if the account's going to get created, you have to set up MFA as part of it. There's just no other alternative. And if it's the default, chances are they're not going to go through and try to circumvent it as long as it's not too much of an inconvenience, right? In this day and age, I don't think MFA is considered an inconvenience at this point. Pretty much every major website has it enabled. Unfortunately, it's not default. That's the biggest challenge at this moment. A lot of the mid-sized companies that I deal with, as well as some municipalities here in Texas. Well, first thing I ask them is, have you implemented MFA? And most of the time they say, no, I haven't, but they know what it is. And then you see who implement it. And then the mayor or the president of this company or whomever, they get mad because they have to 
go to their phone. And I think MFA is a stopgap for kind of what we're coming up into, you know, with the SSO and the passwordless guys out there like Hyper. They're doing some really amazing things. And then I think we're going to see a huge growth in biometrics, not to the point where we're getting, you know, like Elon wants us to all get chips in our brain. But I think that as our devices actually start converging into our what we wear and what we do and, you know, those types of things, I think biometrics is, is going to be one of the things that kind of at least bridges that gap. And it's hard to trick that. Agreed. I'd love to see us go in that direction. And yeah. I'm also I'm curious, as it relates to patching, how often does the average company patch the way you guys see? And I'll give you what I'm saying on our end. SMB, actually, I want to hear both SMBs and mid to large. What do you guys think? Large enterprises actually have proper security people and teams and, and things like that. They typically put in a, a pretty sophisticated patch management program, whether buying Tanium or buying some other vendor. They typically just want to automate that. So they're trying to put more automation into the organization. So we're seeing that in, in a lot of it's going down to if you have very sophisticated active directory so if your AD is strong, you are going to want to keep everything patched. And SaaS is causing a lot of problems. And so the big guys are kind of on top of that. As you start moving down the chain, a lot of companies that I work with don't patch unless they're told to. And they don't know what to patch and what not to patch. So I would probably say 70% on the big side, 35 for mid, and probably 10% small. I get the, I also get the the, dog, the look my dog gives me sometimes when I talk about patch programs. I think probably similar, similar numbers that I've seen as well. A lot of the small, medium-sized businesses that are at least more aware of this problem have tried to move to cloud-native services yeah. as much as possible, right? So they've kind of shifted the shared responsibility model over to a separate vendor to handle patching that infrastructure. Is that a wise decision? Given the size and resources that they've got, yeah, it makes sense. But even the most lean small business still has some amount of on-prem infrastructure that they're responsible for. Yeah. And for that stuff, yeah, it's likely it might only get patched when equipment gets replaced, which is kind of sad. Yeah, third-party risk is a huge problem because, you know, there's a very visible CISO that just recently lost her job because one of their partners was breached. And she didn't know about it and it came through and they were breached, but they didn't do anything wrong. But one of their partners was, and they had an API connected into the organization. Um, there's probably more political wrangling that happened in vaccines, but she lost her job and that's what they blamed it on. So that's getting worse. And, and it's a great question, Corey, about how many companies patch. You can patch all day long, but if you're connecting to other folks, then you're connecting to other service providers, whether it be it in the cloud or you know another organization. You got to trust that they're going to patch too. Yeah, you just opened a can of worms there. I'll, yeah, give, I did. <laughs> I'll give you what I'm seeing around patching. It's pretty interesting. I agree in general with your your numbers, but let's dive a little bit deeper into the the mid market. Mid market, what I'm starting to see is okay. They may have like a WSUS or something, all right? But okay, what do you do for your your Mac or your Linux? And then they completely forget about in most cases applications, application patching. Okay, like we talked about, there's so many application vulnerabilities that come out that can be exploited, allow remote code execution that no one's even touching. And so the small, most have nothing in place beyond switching. And so now let's talk about APIs and supply chains. And supply chains are SMBs. I'm talking to a bunch of very large, you know, global companies, and they're they're trying to figure out how to secure their supply chains. 
and I'm, I'm literally yelling at them, um, outsource it to us. We take care of your supply chain. <laughs> at the end of the day, they're like, well, let's go and find the best products and let's, let's figure yeah. out to tell them how to implement. And I'm yelling to them, and I've, I've talked to folks that even CISA, is that you're saying all the right things. But if it's not a warm body at these companies with the know-how and the time to go and execute on it, it's not going to happen. Okay. And so that's the challenge that we've run into. And I've learned a lot over the last four years or so, just really deep diving into SMB. But the theory around this, and this is just going back to Elon and Tesla, whereas you you just have your key in your pocket and you configure it, your car is going to automatically, the door is going to close and lock. You're good. Okay. And so cybersecurity has to evolve and be more frictionless to where, Yeah. yeah, you can click a button and Ah, we have automatic patching program. We have endpoints being blocked and multi-factor, et cetera. That's how easy it has to be because otherwise we won't get there because we don't have the people and the process. Or you're you're talking us out of a career, man. AI is going to do that. AI is doing that. AI is doing that. You should see the number of analyst firms that have popped up since ChatGPT came out. <laughs> so. <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> It's a whole nother can of worms. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Corey, so much for taking the time to to chat with us today about all of these issues. And Chris, always a pleasure talking with you as well. For our audience listening to us from wherever, please let us know if you're interested in hearing more about any of the topics that we covered or new topics that you'd like to hear us talk about. Please DM us at The Threat Show. We'd love to hear from you and stay tuned for uh, next week's episode. And Corey, I can't thank you enough, man. It's really always good to see you, my friend. I love what you're doing there. And and I want to make another shout out to Jake. I think Jake does an awesome job on producing the show. So really appreciate all the work that you do for us, Jake. And so, but no, thanks again, my friend. Darian, thank you. Okay, this was fun. Yeah. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for tuning into The Threat Show. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and interact with us on Twitter at The Threat Show. Also, be sure to subscribe to Fletch's interactive newsletter and Trending Threats app to go deeper into the stories we discuss and the threat index. Be sure to stay tuned to stay ahead of threats.